2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 12. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you were with us last week, we left off looking at how looking at our unworthiness, but we also looked at how it's God is the one who makes us worthy of his kingdom and his and salvation by his grace. So I'm going to ask you a tough question to get started. And I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to have a hard time um, answering this question. There is a correct answer. And I want to see how you do. And that'll help you get ready for where we're going to go in just a little bit here. How many of you are worthy for salvation? Very good. You've been the, the right answer is you should have raised your hand. If you're saved, you are worthy. You don't feel worthy, but you are worthy. You have been, if you're saved here tonight, you are, you're already worthy. You've been made worthy. And that's what we're going to take a look at tonight as we start breaking down from the scriptures, this term worthy. It's a hard thing for us because we all know we're not worthy, but you are. Because you've been make, made worthy and you've been declared worthy. But we're also going to take a look at what makes us worthy and not only him making us worthy, but there's something that God is looking for that he then says those people are worthy. Even though it really doesn't come from us. It's going to get a little deep, but hopefully you'll be able to track with us here. Um, but first, I want to make this statement from the scriptures. The ones who have been made worthy are the ones who respond to God's offer of salvation through faith alone in Jesus' work on the cross and no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them. Uh, that's very important. I'm going to read it to you again. The ones who've been made worthy are the ones who respond to God's offer of salvation through faith alone in Jesus' work on the cross and no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and look at verse 15. Verse 15. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. <clears throat> he says this, And he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Remember how Jesus himself said, 
Unless you're willing to forsake all, you cannot be my disciple. There's lots of people that say, oh, I believe in Jesus and, and I, I hope he'll take me into heaven when I die. But I'm going to live for myself right now. The Bible says those people have not surrendered to the Lordship of Christ Jesus. They have not given their life to Jesus. You may have given him your eternity, but if you're not willing to give him now, Jesus said, you're not my disciple. That's why in John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, it says this. It says, and upon seeing the miracles that Jesus did, many believed in his name. But the next verse says, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all men. And he didn't need man's testimony about man. He knew already what was in man. In other words, even though they believed, he knew it wasn't real faith. And as you've already seen and heard throughout our study many times in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told the parable of the soils. And how the seed falls on all different types of soils. And some soil responds where it springs up and looks like salvation. But trouble comes and they walk away. Or the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of wealth choke them. They have no root. But the good seed, uh, sorry, the seed falls on the good soil and it produces a crop. And so here, what I want you to understand is, as we take a look at worthiness. And we look at the word worthy in the scriptures. And by the way, you may be surprised how often it's actually there. You're going to see that there's this pattern here. Of those who humble themselves who respond in childlike faith to the only way in which they can be made right with God, and that's through faith alone in what Jesus has done for them. And they give their lives to the Lord. Now, yes, if we're honest with ourselves, even though we've been born again and declared worthy, we sometimes, because our flesh is still here, try to live for self. And we do kind of live in the flesh instead of in the spirit. But the overall attitude of our heart is a desire to live for God. Did David not sin sometimes in his flesh pretty mightily? Yet at the same time, he was a man after God's own heart. Why? Because God knew on the whole, David's heart was for God. He didn't always live that way, but his heart was for God. And so if you have humbled yourself and say, the only way I may write with God is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And I desire to live for him. Those are the people that he declares worthy. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Matthew 22. In Matthew chapter 22, look at verses 1 through 14. Now, I'm going to make a commercial here for the Bible cruise, because here Jesus talks in a parable. And what I'm going to be doing in the Bible cruise coming up in October, and if you haven't signed up and you want to, please do, because the, the, the ship is filling up. And we've got the best prices. Trust me, my wife's held these cabins for a while. And the prices we have are crazy. And when those price cabins that have been held are gone, if you still want to sign up in this room, you're going to pay a lot more. But let me just say this. The theme for the Bible cruise is the parables of Jesus. I'm going to be covering a lot of parables of Jesus. And the, and the title of, the, of the, the Bible cruise is What is God Trying to Tell Us? Because parables are stories that Jesus makes up to teach a point. You get yourself in trouble when you try to make every little detail of a parable fit everything. That's not what the parable is about. He'll just make a parable up in order to teach a point. That's why in some parables, leaven is sin. But in other parables, leaven just talks about the effectiveness of yeast and it grows for good. So is leaven good or leaven bad? Depends on the parable and what he's trying to teach in the parable. In this parable, you're going to see there's something Jesus is trying to teach. Matthew 22, verse 1. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. 
Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited, look closely, were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So here Jesus is talking and telling this parable and talking about salvation and how it's offered to everyone, but offered first to the Jews. And as we see in John chapter one, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. He sent his servants out to invite the nation of Israel and the Jews, and they didn't respond. He kept the offering to them, inviting them. And because they did not respond in the proper manner and because they then killed the son, they, he said, they have judged themselves not worthy. You're going to see that in a little bit. They're not worthy. Go invite everybody. The good and the bad. It's not, it's not determined by how good or bad you are. But then in the story, he tells about a guy who came and responded to the offer at the wedding feast, but he didn't have a garment on. In other words, back in those days when you were invited to wedding feast, when you showed up, the way that the master acknowledged that you had been invited and you were welcomed is they gave you a garment that you would wear while you're there that showed that you had been invited and you were welcomed. But this guy pretty much said, I don't need the garment of acceptance of the master. My clothes are good enough. Enough? Have we not run into a lot of people that think they're getting into the kingdom on their own goodness? Let me take you somewhere real quick. Back in the Old Testament, we see an interesting story of a man named Gideon. And God empowers him to raise up 32,000 people to fight the Midianites. And by the way, the Bible says there are so many Midianites you couldn't count their camels. Yet he only grinds up 32,000 and then God tells Gideon, tell him that Anybody that's afraid and really doesn't want to do this, they're free to go home. 22,000 leave. They're down to 10,000. He then says, take the 10,000 and have them go down to the river and have them drink. And the ones who drink in this manner are the ones I've chosen. They all had a free choice on how they were going to drink. But the ones who drank in the predetermined manner, predetermined by God, were the ones who were accepted. And we don't, maybe you've not seen this, but here's a picture of salvation. God has already predetermined before the foundation of the world that salvation would be by faith alone in his son and through his son's sinless life, his son's death on the cross, his son's resurrection from the dead. And that is the predetermined manner in which God has said all must drink. You're free to drink in any way you want. But the ones who drink in this manner are the ones I've chosen. Many are called. Everyone's called. But only few are chosen. And those are the ones who are declared worthy. Go to Matthew chapter 10. Look at verses 11 through 15. 
Jesus is, in, we're in the middle of a passage where Jesus is sending out his disciples two by two to go share the gospel of the kingdom. In Matthew 10, verse 11 and following, And whatever village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. If it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for that land, for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So look at what he says. When you go out, look for people who are worthy. Well, who's worthy? Those who are willing to respond to the offer in the predetermined manner through humility, acknowledgement of their need, repentance, childlike faith. God gives grace to who? The humble. He opposes who? The proud. For by grace you have been saved through faith is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. What God is looking for is a people who are willing to respond to his offer in the predetermined manner and drink only in that way. But the only way you can get to that place is to say, I need Jesus. I don't need a little of Jesus. I need all of Jesus. I need him. Not only for my salvation, but for my daily life. I need him. Go to Revelation. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Revelation 3, verses 1 through 4. To the angel, to the messenger of the church in Sardis, write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you'll not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what, uh, what hour I will come against you. Yet, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. By the way, is... is uh, is Jesus speaking to the world or is he speaking to a church here? He's speaking to the church in Sardis and the church is. I'll hear what the Spirit says to the church is. And as he's speaking to church is, he said, you know what? You got people in there who act like they got it, but they don't. Have the reputation of being alive, but they're dead. And I'm giving you opportunity. I've given you enough Time to respond. You better strengthen what remains and what you have left of opportunity. And if you don't, I'm going to come and we're going to deal with that thief in the night when we come back together in a few weeks and deal with the day of the Lord. But at the same time, he says, but I also know you got some people in there who are going to walk with me in white because they're worthy. Who are the worthy? Those who humble themselves like children, who acknowledge their need, repent, and turn to Jesus, the only way in which we can be made right. Now, here's where it's going to get deep. Go to Acts 13. Acts 13, verses 42 through 48. 
Paul's been preaching in a synagogue here. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. In other words, it's kind of like what Jesus just said to the church in Sardis, strengthen what remains and is about to die. You know the Bible says in John 6, 44, that no one can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws them first. If God doesn't pursue us, we would never look for Him. We are so separated from God because of our sin. We're so dead in our spirits. We wouldn't even look for God unless he began the process. I believe the Bible teaches in many ways that he actually begins the process in everyone in some way, shape or fashion. Others he draws more than others and he gets to do it however he wants. But at the same time, John 6, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them. Verse 45, though, as it says in the prophets, they all will be taught by God. Whoever listens comes to me. Everybody hears, not everybody listens. Now, Paul is speaking, and Barnabas has been teaching in this synagogue, and there's a lot of people that come to him after the service is over, and they go, we want to hear some more next Sabbath. We want to, we want to hear some more. And Paul says this, continue in the grace of God. In other words, God's grace is being poured out to you. He's drawing you. You wouldn't be responding like this at all unless he had begun his work. He's drawing you. You have the responsibility of whether or not you're going to respond appropriately. It's on you. Continue in the grace of God. Keep reading. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside. Look closely and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. A little deep, isn't it? You got Paul saying, God's drawing you. You have a responsibility to stay in it. You better continue in the grace of God. Yet when they responded and did believe, they were appointed for salvation. Listen to me very carefully. If anybody tells you they know fully how God saves, run from them. We know that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. We know, there is, we know that there's no other way to the Father except through Jesus Christ. But in John chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus told Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wills and you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. And so it is it with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Folks, we have enough understanding from God's word to know that salvation is by faith alone in what God has done through Jesus. And that's all. How it works and many wise people will try to argue with each other in predestination and free will and superlapsarianism and pregeneration and all, leave it alone. Because the Bible even says that we need to have faith and God gives us that faith. Yet at the same time, everyone will be held accountable for whether or not they responded. How do those two go together? I don't know and I never will. Maybe till we get to heaven. And I'm not sure I'll fully grasp it then. But you know what? He gets all the glory. But understand this. 
they judged themselves unworthy. It was on them. They can't say, well, he didn't predetermine me for salvation. Whenever you see the word predestined in the Bible, it never says that someone was predestined. It only talks about aspects of salvation being predestined. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. And he predestined us to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. What was predestined? That we would be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through, the, through Jesus Christ. I believe the passage is reading very clearly that what was predestined is that we would be adopted. How? Through Jesus Christ. That's what was predestined. There'll be those who say, well, God has predetermined who's going to be saved and who's not. Well, actually, he kind of has. But how he's done it is all who drink in the manner I've predetermined, they're in. But it's on them. And I'll give them enough to be saved and some I'll give more than another. And it'll be easier on that day of judgment for the people that got less light than the people who got more light. And I'll judge them each according to how much I revealed, but everybody is going to be accountable for whether or not they responded appropriately. And how do we become worthy? Well, he makes us worthy. But what's he looking for? He's looking for humility, repentance, childlike faith, and just trusting in him alone and our life being given to him. How do we become worthy of salvation and God making us worthy? Like I just said, humility, repentance, childlike faith. We don't trust in anything that we have or do, but simply come to him for everything. Go to Matthew 11. Look at verses 25 through 30. Matthew 11, 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Stop for a second. Look at what Jesus said. Father, you have hidden the spiritual truth from the people that think that they're going to figure it out with their smarts. And you revealed it to little children. By the way, that's very, very helpful. Because if salvation and spiritual truth was only available to the people smart enough to figure it out and to understand it, that would leave me and Butch out. Right, Butch? We ain't smart enough to figure out anything. But you know what? He's chosen to reveal it to little children. And that is his gracious will. All of us can be like children. Even the smart people in the room. You can humble yourself and become like a child and say, I don't have to fully understand it, but I can believe it. Keep reading, though, what he says next. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my father, and no one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son, and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Stop. Wait, there you go, Jim. There's one of those verses. He determines who he's going to reveal him to. That's true. But have you not been listening? Who has he chosen to reveal the spiritual truth to? The humble. The childlike. The broken. The repentant. Those who are willing to say, I need help. 
That's why when John the Baptist came on the scene, what was his message? Repent. Repent. God's salvation is coming, but the only way you're going to be able to respond to it appropriately is to acknowledge your sin and your need. Yet we've got a world full of people that think they're pretty good. And I say to those people, look, you think you're going to stand before the big guy upstairs one day and he's going to weigh your good and your bad. You're already starting off on the wrong foot because you think you're going to stand before God the Father. Well, what? yeah. Well, John chapter 5, verse 22 says the Father judges no one but has handed all judgment over to the Son. Oh, and by the way, the measurement in which the Son uses to determine whether you're in or out has nothing to do with how good or bad you've been. Remember that parable? They invited everybody, the good and the bad. You're all welcome. But you have to come in and be willing to receive my righteousness. Come in my covering, my garment, not yours. And also Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 said this, On that day many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we preach in your name and in your name cast out demons? And I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. I've said this so many times, but I'll say it again. One of the things that has surprised and grieved me over the years as I travel around and meet lots of church members, I almost said Christians, church members, and I'll ask them even, Hey, if you died today, would you go to heaven? And a lot of times I hear this. I hope so. From longtime church members. And I go, what do you mean you hope so? The Bible actually says in 1 John 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. What do you mean I hope so? And this is what they always say. Well, I believe in Jesus, but I'm trying to live a good life. They're still mixing faith and some of their own good works. Folks, you want to be in? You want to be declared worthy? You want to be made worthy? You've got to be worthy enough to acknowledge, I can't do it. And by the way, daily, we renew our minds and say, I wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for you, and I can't live this Christian life if it wasn't for you. And I live for you. I no longer live for myself, but I live for the one who died for me and rose from the dead. And then Jesus says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In and of ourselves, we are not worthy of salvation. But God will make us worthy and declare us worthy if we ask him Ask him to do it by his grace, his mercy, and his power. Go to, first, go to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1. Look at verses 10 through 13. It's going to sound a lot like that parable we read in Matthew 22. John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. John chapter 1, starting in verse 10. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people, that's the Jews, did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He came to his own, and his own rejected him. But for those who did receive him, he gave them the right. He declared them righteous and made them children 
of God. You all know Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We've already quote, quoted it. By, for by grace you've been saved through what? Faith. And this is a gift of God, not of works, so no one can boast. I'm going to ask you guys again a real quick question. How many here are worthy of salvation? Yes. We're, we're worthy because we've been made worthy. We've been made worthy. He's declared you worthy. Now, it feels funny, though, doesn't it? Because we still got a little bit of that, well, I ain't doing as good as I... Hey, guys, get over yourself and thank him for his salvation. By the way, the sooner you really acknowledge, look, I, I, I'm not worthy, but I'm worthy because you've made me so, the easier it will be for you to live the Christian life. Because you'll know it's by him and not by you. And the more you keep thinking, well, how am I doing? You're missing the whole point, and it, it'll hinder your growth. Now, this is why, by the way, go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul says what he says about verse 5. We're going to read verse 4, and then we're going to set the stage again for verse 5. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. He says, look, you guys are going through a really hard suffering because of your faith in Christ. And we're bragging on God through you and what he's doing through you in all the churches. And the fact that you're persevering in the midst of this struggle, in the midst of a world that is against God and against Jesus and doesn't want Christians to speak up. This is evidence. The fact that you're making it is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're also suffering. So he says, look, you want evidence of your salvation? It's perseverance in the faith through this hard life. Does God do everything the way we think he should? No. Has he done, allowed things to happen that we probably wish he hadn't? Yes. But you know what? When Jesus in John 6 said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Upon hearing this, many of his disciples stopped following. They said, this is a hard teaching. We don't understand it. And we're not, we think he's a little off. And when they went away, John the Baptist himself said, are you the one or should we look for another? And Jesus turned to the 12 in that situation in John 6 when many of his disciples stopped following. And he says, you guys are free to go, too. And Peter says, where else would we go? You have, we, you have the words of eternal life. We believe that you are the Holy One of God, the Christ. John the Baptist was told everything's right on schedule. Blessed is he who does not fall away on account of me. And so the evidence of our salvation being real is in the midst of all the stuff that God gets to be God and he does it the way he wants instead of the way we want. And we still follow him in faith. That's evidence of our salvation. By the way, did you know that the Bible says that Satan wants to sift us as wheat? He wants to prove that we're chaff and not real wheat. What you do to, the, to the, separate the wheat and the chaff is you take the, the, the grain and you put it through a hard time. You thresh it. Then you blow it and the chaff blows away and only what's real stays. Satan came and said, I'm going to prove that your disciples are all phony. I'm going to sift them as wheat. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to let you put them through some stuff because your purpose is to show that their salvation is not real. I'm going to use that exact same stuff you put them through to show that my, their salvation is real.
This is why if anyone perseveres in steadfast faith in this wicked world, who gets the glory? It's God. Because he's the one who's made us worthy. Go back to chapter two of, Thess of sorry, chapter one of Second Thessalonians. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back just probably a page in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5. Look again at verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Who saved you? Jesus did. Did you do anything besides just by faith receiving his salvation? No. You just by faith received it. Listen closely. This is how you are sanctified. In the same way. Daily, you say, Lord, there are things you still want to produce in me. Yes, I have been declared righteous, and I thank you for that. But there's, you're still in the process of conforming me into the image of Jesus Christ so that I look more and more like him, which you have predetermined. That all those you foreknew, you predestined to be conformed into his image. I want that, Lord. I receive that today in whatever it is that you want to do. Many of us have said, I'm going to live for Jesus more. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try to be a better Christian. We've all tried that, haven't we? And we feel a little frustrated when are you going to believe and when is Jim Johnson going to fully believe that he who began the good work in you will finish it? May your whole body, soul and spirit be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord. The one who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Well, I don't see it. Well, you don't believe that he will. Well, I thought it would happen a little bit more by now, especially in my husband. If he said he'll do it. He'll do it. And don't worry about that about somebody else either. Believe it for you. I had a man come to me last night and he goes, I heard tonight that God said, stop beating myself up. I said, yeah, exactly. He's got a purpose and a plan and a timing. And we're in this age where preachers are saying, get it all fixed right now. And that's not how God works. It hit me the other day. You know, God spared Moses when he was a baby. But do you know that God really didn't fully introduce himself to Moses until Moses was 80? He's not really on the same timetable that we're on, is he? Jesus in John 16, verse 12 said, I have more to share with you, more than you can now bear. But when the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all the truth. He'll show you when it's time. He'll get you there. So I'm going to encourage you. Thank him for the fact that you raised your hand and said, I'm worthy because of Jesus and nothing because of me. And believe that that sanctification process will also be accomplished. But it's received in the same way. By faith. As a child. Daily renewing your mind. Laying yourself on that altar. And saying, Lord. I believe you'll get me there. And I will trust in your timing. Some of the most godly wives or godly husbands have 
had to trust that, as much as I joked earlier, that God would be the one who gets the spouse to that point in his timing. But the, those of us who get in the way are the ones who are trying to help and get them there by nagging or fixing, preaching. No. That he began a good work and me will finish it. He began a good work in her or he will finish it. Take a deep breath and believe that he will and just respond daily, trusting that he'll get you there. Go to John chapter 3. It's a very familiar passage, but unfortunately, that's a problem. Because when we become familiar with things, we don't really look at them anymore and allow the Spirit to show us deeper things. It's kind of like I am when all I find all these airplanes and they come out and they start doing the safety announcements. I've heard it. I tune it out. Oh, there could be something new. I probably won't know. Because I've unfortunately tuned them out. It's a safety time. I know all this stuff. If they change something, someone need to wake me up because I'm already asleep at that point. Don't do that when it comes to this passage of Scripture. John 3, starting in verse 16. Listen closely. For God so loved who? Did Jesus only die for the people that were going to be saved or did Jesus die for the world? According to 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, but not only our sins, but also for the sins of the entire world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, be reconciled to God. Jesus paid for the sins of the world. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, and his only son died for the whole world. That doesn't mean everybody's going to heaven. Actually narrows the road that leads to eternal life and few there be that find it. Why? Because most people aren't willing to humble themselves and acknowledge their need like a child. They think they're smarter. Or there's many ways that they can figure out or even if they believe in Jesus, they don't think they really need him that much. But keep reading. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have, and this is going to be important later on tonight, so keep this word in your mind, eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Remember, the predetermined manner in which we are to drink is by faith alone in Jesus. You don't respond to that, your, your judgment's already been made. You don't got to wait until you get to heaven to find out or get the, the, on the other side of this life to find out. You already are going either to heaven or to hell by whether or not you believe in Jesus. But keep reading. And this is the judgment, verse 19. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil and they didn't want to acknowledge that. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There it is right there again. The reason why the world doesn't respond is they don't want to acknowledge their sin and they want to hide it. They're not willing to acknowledge it and repent and say, God, I need you. Oh, but for those of us who do, who gets the glory? God. Be evident that his work has been done in God. Now, as much as though there's good news for those whom God has made worthy of this future reward, 
there's also a severe judgment coming for those who reject God's offer of salvation and deemed themselves unworthy. Go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look at verses 6 through 10. We've just seen that this, the, our perseverance in this time of wicked world and continuing in faith, even though we don't fully understand all that God's doing or understand His timing, but the fact we continue is evidence of His righteous judgment that we've been considered worthy. But look in verse 6 now. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So stop here real quick. When Paul's writing here about God revealing and judging and being glorified in his saints, he's not talking about the rapture. Look closely. You'll see this. He's not talking about the rapture. He's talking about the second coming of Christ to the earth. Because look again, verse 6, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to those who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in what? In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus. And then it talks about how he'll be glorified and, and rejoiced at by those who are believers on the earth at the time. This is not the rapture. This is the second coming. And the believers at that time who are going to be responding will be those who survive the tribulation as tribulation saints. But listen. As you're going to see when we come back together in a couple of weeks, actually three weeks from now, since we have two weeks off from our study. When we come back together, I'm going to be breaking down chapter two in great detail to show you that Paul very clearly had taught the church there in Thessalonica that the rapture of the church would happen prior to the tribulation period, the day of the Lord and all that stuff and the judgment of God. And Paul's dealing with those who are coming and saying that they're already in the day of the Lord. The suffering that's going on is evidence of it and all this. And we're going to talk about all that kind of stuff, because when we start trying to instead of trusting that God's going to make it very clear to us when things are and try to figure it all out. Folks, would, we, we keep hearing people, and I'm going to touch on this when we come back again in a few weeks, but you hear a lot of people say, oh, there's wars and rumors of wars and all these things. We're in the birth pains. And I'm going to show you we're not in the birth pains yet. But on top of that, if you were alive during the time of World War I and World War II, wouldn't you have thought that that was definitely it? I mean, good grief, wars and rumors of wars and famines and, and the depression and we got to be in. No, no. Stop trying to figure it out. And Paul had taught them that the church would be removed prior to. He's going to make that very clear in chapter two. The church would be removed prior to that. And they're all freaking out now because people are saying we're in the tribulation period. We're in the day of the Lord. The return of Jesus is to come in judgment now. And Paul is saying, hey, I'll deal with all that in my next chapter. And we're going to when we come back together. But for right now, understand this. You're going through suffering right now, and it's evidence of your salvation. Leave the timing of God rewarding and God judging to God. He's going to reward those of us who have been afflicted, and he's going to afflict those who are doing the afflicting when he comes in flaming fire. And I want you to hear this. 
As much as we look forward to that day when he takes us from this earth and we go be with Jesus, there is a time coming for those who don't know Jesus that is going to be unbelievably severe. And right now we need to be praying for those people. There's a tendency in these days for us to fall into a mindset that says, God, come take us out of here and judge these people. And God says, that's not the attitude you're supposed to have. Because right now, the reason I haven't come back and judged is why. It's not time, and he's not willing for anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. And his slowness is in slowness as we count it. But he has a reason and a purpose. Yes, because our flesh and sometimes our spirit says, oh, Lord, come now. The reason he hasn't is because he has a reason and a purpose. But he, Paul's saying to them, look, God's not unjust. He's keeping track. And in the time in which we're going to see him and be happy to see him, there's also going to be a time coming when they are going to be judged. I want you to also notice that God will be just in judging all those who reject his offer of salvation and to also afflict the saints in this life. Write this down because at the time we don't have time to turn there. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 makes very clear that God is just and righteous in everything he does. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. God is just and he's righteous in everything he does. Nothing slips by him. Now, a lot of times we don't think he's handled things as quickly as we would like him to. But don't worry, he says, I've got everything written down in all the books of everybody's life and what they've done. And actually, everyone that rejects my offer of salvation will be held accountable for every idle word. He's keeping track. Go to Romans chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 11. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He's going to re render to each one according to his works. To those by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there'll be wrath and fury. There'll be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Do you believe that God's keeping track of all that you're going through and he's going to reward you for it one day? Keep just in mind that those people in the world who are evil, they're going to be judged just as much in, in the other direction. But at the same time, do you realize who's writing this book that we've been studying here a lot in Romans and First and Second Thessalonians? Who's writing? Paul. Do you know much about Paul's life? Paul was a terrorist 
Paul was a man who went out to kill Christians. He actually signed people's death warrants. He actually would hold coats while people were being killed. He would go out of his way to pursue people and have them put in jail or put to death. But God, in his mercy, saved Paul. Are we willing to have some of these people that we see as horribly wicked actually get saved? Or are we going to be mad that God may spare them? If you think to yourself, oh man, I... I, didn't, I wanted that guy to get judged. You really don't understand who you are then. Those who realize they've been forgiven much, love much. Those who think they've been forgiven little, love little. You know, James chapter 2, verse 10 says, if we're able to keep the whole law, yet stumble at just one point, we're guilty as if we broke it all. When God saved you, even me at eight years old, because I was a sinner, I was guilty as if I broke God's whole law because if you break one, you broke it all because the law demanded perfection. And if you can't keep it, you're guilty. Now, yes, he's going to keep track of all that other stuff, but I was as guilty as Paul. But God saved me. And we thank him for it, and hopefully you do, but keep in mind, be praying. Well, this will help you out. There are some people right now in the government that you wish God would hurry up and just take off the earth and judge, correct? I don't want names. I don't want to be saying out loud because someone might recognize your voice on the tape. But listen. <laughs> you also have family members, loved ones who are headed for what we're reading here, correct? I'm pretty sure you're not saying, I hope they get it too. Your heart's attitude probably is, Lord, spare them. I love them. We should have that same attitude toward our enemies. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Well, they're ruining our country. Father, forgive them. They're blind. They don't know what they're doing. And pray. When the time of judgment comes... Yes, the souls under the altar during the tribulation period, during the time of his wrath, are going to be crying out, how long do you avenge our blood? But that's not the time period we're in. We're still in that age of grace. And we need to have the same heart for those people out there who don't know the Lord. But Paul says to them, look, I know you're being afflicted. Keep in mind, God will deal with them. It's not for you to take it into your own hands or determine that you think it needs to be dealt with now. Second Peter 3. Look at verses 1 through 7. Peter says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the way, we're going to study all that when we get to uh, Genesis next. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Do you all realize that day's already been set? Acts 17, verse 31, Paul said that God has already set the day of judgment and he's given proof of who he's going to use by raising that person from the dead. He's not waiting on anything. 
It's already set. We are a day closer to that day, and it is coming. But the timing of it, we need to leave in the Lord's hands. Why? Because he knows his purposes, and his purposes are good and just. And we, have, as much as we want family members to still be saved before this day of judgment comes, we want to be starting to pray for those in the world that don't know the Lord and aren't our families. But Hebrews 10, go to Hebrews 10. Look at verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately, this is, by the way, rejecting God's offers of salvation. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And anyone who has set aside the law of Moses died without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Listen, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? By the way, does that mean someone lost their salvation? No, like I've told you before. Jesus died for the whole world. He paid for the sins of the whole world. But the whole world now has to be willing to respond to God's offer. And when you thumb your nose at God's offer of his own son, you're not only going to be held accountable for every sin that you've done that's been written in the book. That's why in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, when everybody's brought before the great white throne judgment, all the books are opened and everything's judged according to what they did in the books. And then the Lamb's book of life was opened. And if their names weren't in there, they were were cast into the lake of fire. Don't miss this. They were cast into the lake of fire for rejecting Jesus. Because they rejected Jesus' payment for their sins, now they're accountable for all their sins and they're going to be paying for them for eternity. Put a finger here in Hebrews. Go back to 2 Thessalonians 1 again. I want you to see that word we looked at in John 3, 16. In, John 3, in 2 Thessalonians 1, starting in verse 9, they will suffer the a punishment of what? Eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might. Stop for a second. Do you believe that your salvation and your, etern your heaven is eternal? Then that same word says that their punishment will also be eternal. There are some preachers out there today and Christians who are trying to say, well, I don't think hell's real. Well, it's real. Second of all, well, I think people, if they go there, they only go for a period of time and then they'll get extinguished according to how bad. That's not what the Bible teaches. Their punishment is for eternity. Why? Because they said, I'm not going to receive Jesus' payment for my sins. I'll take care of it with my own plan or my own righteousness or whatever. And you can't pay it that way. Therefore, hell is eternal. And Jesus described hell in this manner, where the worm does not, not die and the fire is not quenched. If the fire is not quenched and a worm won't even die, the people that are in torment in hell, and they'll be judged according, their torment will be in proportion to how much they had revealed and how much they rejected. But their, their torment is eternal. A lot of us don't want to hear that, but that's what the Bible teaches. And you either believe God's just or you don't. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, that's the law, and every transgression or disobedience received it a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, 
It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. We need to pay close attention to what we're hearing here. Here's how we're going to close tonight. As we wrap up this section of verses and prepare to move on to chapter 2 and Paul's continued teaching to the Thessalonians about the day of the Lord, we must note that the day of the Lord is a time of God's wrath. That's what it is. The day of the Lord is a time of God's wrath. Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 9. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you're all children of the light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. And, and those, uh, sorry, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet, uh, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Go back to chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. Look at verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. When we get back together in a couple of weeks, three weeks actually, when we get back together, we're going to start to break down chapter 2 and the day of the Lord and all that it means and all that's going on and timing of some things. But I want to warn you, don't try to figure out the timing. Just know what the scripture says, that it's going to happen in this way. But when and how, you've got to leave that to God. But let me encourage you with this. Hang on through faith in Jesus Christ. Your perseverance will be evidence that you've been made worthy and you've been declared worthy and he's going to finish what he started and he'll deal with the wicked, but he's got that all taken care of and he's going to deal with it way better than you even could have imagined. And as you're going to see, you don't even want to be on the earth when this time comes. So until then, I love you. We'll see you in a few weeks.